chapter 2 of 1 Kings, we are picking it up where David, David's passing away and Solomon's going to be the king. And that's where we're at. It's all going in that direction. And David rose to the occasion. Last week we saw where uh, Adonijah was trying to sort of usurp the throne, or definitely usurp the throne, and Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet intervened. They got to David. David said, I made this promise. It's the Lord. God's always delivered me. And the king is going to be Solomon. And so David put that in place and stepped aside from the throne and let Solomon become the king. And that's where we pick it up here tonight. So it's pretty amazing that David, at the very end of his life, was able to just let go while he's still alive and turn the throne over to Solomon, and that's the background. But of course, in chapter one, we have unfinished business from Joab, Abathar, all those guys, Adonijah, for leading a treasonous rebellion against David and against David's choice to be king, his successor, Solomon. So that's still hanging over everything. And tonight, after our long journey with David, very insightful and encouraging journey with David in First and Second Samuel, David does step into eternity, and that's where we pick it up tonight in chapter two of First Kings. Now, the days of David drew near that he should die. He charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their hearts and with all their souls, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me and that he what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amos, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime. And he put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your son. And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Bahurim, who cursed me with malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahinam. But he came down to me to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him. But bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. In Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. So here we go. We have 12 verses starting chapter 2 of Kings, and we now have the end of David stepping into eternity. We saw his last words that he spoke in 2 Samuel, the, this, that he was the sweet psalmist of Israel. We had different kind of final things that we see in his last chapter of his life. And tonight he, we see this exhortation to his son Solomon, who is now the king, and he tells him certain things that are going on. So first of all, we see what we've really looked at with David a whole application a couple Saturdays ago that the day drew near that he should die yep and he says I go the way of all the earth because it's appointed to men to die once and then the judgment and this is something we all face and we know that the whole universe is under the law of entropy which is the result of sin in the garden with our father Adam 
who was given jurisdiction over the universe, essentially under the Lord. And when he, when they rebelled and sinned against God, they forfeited that deed of planet Earth to the devil himself. Which, of course, is why, in Revelation chapter five, Jesus has the scroll. He's worthy to open the scroll, which is really the deed to planet Earth, which is forfeited because worthy is the lamb. So when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, he redeemed back all that was lost with Adam. He made a way of redemption for us, and he redeemed back the world, and he really redeemed back and put in motion the whole redemption of the universe, because Romans 8 tells us that the whole universe, that is, every trillions of all the trillions of galaxies out here, they're all waiting. Everything in creation, like Jesus said, the rocks would cry out his praise. Everything in creation is waiting for the full redemption of the new heaven and new earth, and it is moving that way. But 3,000 years ago, before the time of Christ, David being a real foreshadow of Christ and speaking prophetically of Jesus in many ways, he says what all humanity has to say, what all people have to face. He goes the way of all the earth. Death reigns over the universe, and we're reminded in this text that this is a reality that is before us. And there in Hebrews, we're told it's appointed to men to die once and then the judgment. And this is something people don't like to think about. People don't like to talk about it. But I think in the church for us, we know that this mortal must put on immortality and that this corruptible puts on incorruptibility in the Lord and that we have an earthly body, but we're going to be receiving a heavenly body. And so we're going to be in glory. And as he is in glory, Jesus Christ, so those two, those daughters and sons of faith which Jeff prayed about, being sons and daughters of the king, we will have a body in glory. Isn't that nice to know? In a summer where I've had all kinds of physical infirmities affecting me adversely for over two months and have had discomfort and pain, and it just makes me happy to think that though the outward man's perishing, the outward woman's perishing, the inward woman's being renewed daily through faith in Jesus Christ, as is the inward man. So it's tough for the world. It's tough for the animal kingdom. It's tough for the universe to see death. But even as we read that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, we also read that, uh, that though we die, we're made alive in Christ, and we have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we believe in him and trust in him, we pass from death to life. And we're promised, we're promised in the Bible repeatedly, eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. So though we will go the way of all the earth and the time will come and will draw near for us to die. We're going to go in peace because the chief shepherd is coming for us. We might not go pain-free. Your worst physical pain in the human experience might be your last breath on planet Earth. But if that is the case, take comfort in this. Your greatest step of faith will be with your last breath as well. So you might have your worst physical pain ever when you step into eternity. But that day and that moment when you pass from the temple to eternal will be that greatest step of faith you ever take because that's the fullness and the reward and the crown jewel of our faith. So David, the man after God's own heart, the day drew near that he should die and we will die. And he went the way of all the earth and we will go the way of all the earth. But, you know, to appoint him in to die once, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful thing that we celebrate every time we gather in this sanctuary on Tuesdays and Saturdays. That that, that really is the core foundation for us. It's a powerful verse because even not only you're just a great man like David and you're, you can't get warm in bed when you're older, but it, you're going to go the way of all the earth. And so he charges now, we shift gears to what he says to Solomon, be strong and prove yourself a man. Like man up, step up, be strong. 
Rise to the occasion. Be that woman of God. Be that man of God is what the Spirit would say to us in transition. Someone we love that we've looked to our whole life, they're stepping into eternity, and it's now our time. Every generation has to go through this. The baton of life, the baton of opportunity is passed in every generation, and in the church it's passed from generation to generation. Eventually, a John the Apostle gives way to a Polycarp, and then it just goes on and on in church history. And a Pastor Chuck gives way to a Brian Broderson and Greg Laurie and these people. And there's a time when Steve Mays gives way to Jeff Gill, and it just goes on and on. Like, that's just the way it is. And we're reminded of that in this text tonight. There, there will be the death of what was, and there'll be the birth of what will be in the beginning of a new thing, which was the topic on Saturday night, that God's got new things, and God is in the business of new beginnings and new things and that's what we have right here and even as moses stepped in eternity and joshua replaced him so too that's what we have going on right now solomon the time of solomon the two greatest kings probably in human history for different reasons david is given way he passes into eternity and solomon is firmly established in his kingdom but he was exhorted by his dad you got to take care of some things so you're going to be the king you are the king but you got, you got to clean up my mess. you got to, you got to deal with some things here. And that's always a test of leadership. When you come to leadership and you step into things, you often have difficult things you have to deal with right away. You might be established, and the beauty of serving the Lord is it's the Lord's problem, it's the Lord's wisdom, it's the Lord's guidance. And we do see a little clue as to just how great Solomon's wisdom is here. Because before chapter 3, when he asked for wisdom in the dream with the Lord, David mentions his wisdom twice. In talking about dealing with Joab, he says, therefore do according to your wisdom. It was already obvious that he had a wisdom, the ability to make the right decision. Just note the riddle, the enigma. That he just had this insight that's far beyond what most of us could ever have. Because you can be super smart and put a Jeep on Mars and drive it from a building in Houston. But that doesn't mean you have wisdom. That's knowledge. And that's like your supercomputer God gave you working really well. Wisdom is always it's making the right decision knowledge is the facts understanding is what the facts mean and wisdom is coming up with the right plan and then really faith and courage is going for it and doing what needs to be done with the wisdom he also said there in verse nine do not hold him guiltless speaking of shimei for you are a wise man solomon's capable it's already obvious that he's the right guy and so David passes on, and he just tells his son, look, if you just choose to obey the Lord, you're going to prosper, be a man, step up, do what's right. It's that simple. And it can be well said. The right thing is usually not that hard for us to figure out in life, is it? I mean, really, the Ten Commandments, almost anything that's the right decision can be broken down into the Ten Commandments applied by the Holy Spirit in our life. The difficult thing is the heart being willing to do the right thing when our flesh and comfort zone would be contrary to it. But Solomon, he's going to have a really good start. Now we pick it up in verse 13. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. So she said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Remember, he led the rebellion of treason in the previous chapter last week. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. And she said, okay, say it. Now remember, this guy would have had her executed had he pulled off his plan when he had everyone saying, long live King Adonijah. He would have ever either had her exiled or executed. He, she wouldn't have still been on the queen's throne. Verse 15. Then he said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign. 
However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now I ask one petition if you do not deny me. And she said to him, say it. And then he said, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag to Shunammite, his wife. Now that's the young woman, the virgin, who slept with David to keep him warm. So Bathsheba, she was like basically a concubine, but in a different way. So Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed down to her and sat down on his throne and had a sat down on a throne and had a throne set for the king's mother. So she sat at his right hand, and then she said, I desire one small petition of you, do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. And King Solomon answered and said to his mother, Now why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. For him and for Abathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more so also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah the son of Jehoiadiah, and he struck him down, and he died. So this request of Adonijah is not just like to get the girl. It's to get the girl that links him to become the king. It's the very reason that Absalom, when he came into Jerusalem, Adonijah's full brother a couple decades before, when he came in to, in treason against his dad David, and David fled, he led the te- left the ten concubines, the women there back in the house to oversee the affairs of the, of the palace. And Absalom slept with them intimately, publicly, in a tent before the whole city. And that was a way of showing that I'm your king now. I'm the king, and my dad's an old man, and he's over there across the Jordan River in Moab. I'm the king, and that's that. That, that has that symbolism and that recognition. So this is his younger brother, Adonijah, doing the same thing. But this is almost more... This is almost more obvious what he's doing here. And it makes you realize, too, that Bathsheba is fairly old as well, right? Like, Bathsheba is not a young woman here. Bathsheba is certainly older. And how Bathsheba doesn't even recognize the danger to her own life in hearing this out and conceding it. Now, some of you women tonight might say, hey, if that guy comes to my palace and says, you know, the kingdom was mine, and Israel set their expectations on me that I should reign, you might have put him in his place. Not so. She didn't even say anything. She just goes along with it, which tells us that, you know, again, we've talked about when you're a little bit older, you can be a little more vulnerable to schemes and scams and things like that. And this is a scam. This is a scam to steal the kingdom from her son. And she's like, oh, okay, we'll get you Abishag to Shunammitis. Oh, let me get that information for you. Here's my social security. Here's the, here's the routing number. Here's the account. Here's the pin. I mean, that's what it's like. What she's agreeing to here is the end of her world as she knows it. The end of her freedom, the end of her financial freedom, the end of the life she enjoys being at the right hand of the king. And she doesn't even recognize it. So, parenthetical thought. While you got your wits, make sure you cross your T's and dot your I's so you don't end up being deceived like this to your own demise and the people you love that you're leaving behind. Amen?
for real, because this, this is, you might miss this in this story. Like, how is Bathsheba? Like, what's up with this? But it, it happens. <laughs> Today I was thinking about my mom, who's been an attorney for a couple of years. Her and her best friend, who they went to Portugal together. I was in Portugal in 07 with the U.S. team at a world championship, and they were staying in Lisbon, so I took the bus into Lisbon from the coast and had a great time. But that woman was her best friend. But they had a big falling out the last year of her life, and she, her best friend didn't come to my mom's memorial because it is big falling off, falling out because my best friend got ripped off for a half million dollars. All her wealth got stolen from her in that last year my mom was alive. And my mom warned her about these people. My mom, because my mom was shrewd with money. No one's going to rip my mom off. She drove a guy out of the house who was trying to sell her a shower chair. She was beating on him and chasing him out of the house. So my mom was not going to be scammed, but her best friend was scammed for over half a million dollars in her entire wealth. And my mom warned her, this is all a scam, and it was all gone. And then and they had a falling out. Two proud Catholic women, unreconcilable, best friends, and she couldn't come to my mom's memorial. I've always wondered if she regretted that, because my mom loved her very much. If you can't watch your back, make sure you surround people who will watch your back. Amen? Amen. Yeah, because this, this was, she got had here. And good thing Solomon's like, Mom, like, Mom, like you may be at the dinner table a few weeks later. Did you have to go that way? Mom, Mom, like, come on now. So, yeah, it gets my attention only because it's part of the world I've been a part of for the last 10 years with elderly care and ministering to people like you and me in the same generation watching these things happen. That's the end of Adonijah. He just, some people, they have to be number one. They have to be number one. And by the way, you know, the fall from number one to number two is a hard fall. Two to three is not a hard fall, right? Like if you don't win the gold Olympics, silver or bronze, you know, it's like you're still on the podium. It's, we want to be number one. That's why the famous book back in the 80s was looking out for number one. We like number one. I've said this before. There's only a couple words I knew in Japanese 40 years ago, and Ichiban was one of them, which is number one. In Japanese, I had a t-shirt that said number one. But when Tom Curran came along as a better surfer than me, he was number one. And there's no shirt for number two in Japanese, and if there is, I don't want it. That's just where you would get that. Pull that in eyes. I was thinking about this. This guy could have been a prince. Had he, first of all, not even tried to have the treason, he would have had a good life. Lots of property. He, he could have lived the best house on Dana Strand, you know, like could own rental properties and vacation homes. Like he just could have had a, he, he had a great life. And even after the whole thing went down, he still could have had a good life. Just show a repentant heart, a change of character, acknowledge. Solomon's the guy, and like, just find your place in the kingdom. Be grateful that you've got a, in the best reign of any kingdom, probably some of the best kingdoms in human history, and you're like right there. But some people have to be number one. It's just a reminder to us, it's okay to be number two. In fact, of course, the kingdom of God, the servant of all, is the greatest of all, right? That's what Jesus taught us. And it also reminds us that some people, no matter how much you try and help them, you can't help them. Some people get it, some don't, and they will. Some people don't, and they never will. You just, you can't help this guy. And in ministry, early on in ministry, now I'm 34 years in it, and I'm on the back end, but on the front end, you think you can fix everybody. No, I can fix this marriage. I I can fix this teenager. I can fix this church. I can fix this home group. I can fix it. You just, you know, you start out thinking you can do that. But you, 
there's a lot of people that left the ministry when they realized they couldn't do that. But what you learn to understand is that, you know what? If it's going to be done, it's going to be the Lord. And I need to be available to the Lord and pray that God would do this. And you might see a good ending. But if the Lord's not going to fix it, how am I ever going to fix it? And why would I have people trust in me when they need trust in Jesus? I'm his ambassador. And that's what you learn. And people like this, you can't help them. And ultimately, they're extremely toxic and they're destructive. They'll destroy your business. They'll destroy your church. They'll destroy your neighborhood. And you have to figure out a way to keep them outside the walls of Jerusalem. And even if they're family, if they're toxic, and everything they touch is death, you have to, you have to realize, like Solomon, no. There's just, and in his case, of course, it's a, it's a capital punishment for treason. Human history shows most countries, if you commit treason, they hang you, right? The wild, I'd say the Wild West, but the colonial era, a lot of people hung for treason, either treason against the colonies, the Continental Congress Army, or for against Britain. I mean, lots of people got hung between like 1775 and 1782 in the War of Independence for treason on both sides. World War II, if you collaborated, you're a collaborator, well, if you resisted the Nazis when they invaded your town, they would hang you. If someone did something, you assassinate a key German soldier, they'd line up the men, they'd shoot him. Treason, treason, treason. When World War II was over, how many French were expelled from France for collaborating with the Germans and the Nazis? A lot of them. And some of them were killed privately in reprisals in their little villages. And that, of course, is a fact. Treason's a high crime. Adonijah committed treason against David, the king, and God's will. He had a second chance, he blew it, and he hung for it which is just sobering to us to make sure we're, we're not picking the wrong sides in righteousness and wickedness because he was the side of wickedness. He's the side of pride and lust and power and control. Solomon, remember, he never exalted himself in chapter one. He let the Lord fight his battles. David fought his battles. His mom fought his battles, but Solomon never had to raise his hand to become king. He was the anointed of God. It's always best. You can fight your battles. It's best to let the Lord do it. And in the end, now Solomon has to do a hard task. He's the king. He's got to deal with this. It's capital punishment for treason, and that's just the way it is. In a lot of countries to this day, right now, on planet Earth 2022, well, I think it's safe to say a lot of Ukrainians have killed fellow Ukrainians for being perceived collaborators with the Russians for treason. And that's just the way it works in the human experience. It's not unique to them. And it's not unique to anyone. It's human nature. He's a treason, committed treason twice. He's dead. There's no place for him on planet Earth, and that's what capital punishment is. It's no place on planet Earth for people who are only toxic. And if God decrees it, that's the way it goes. Verse 26. And Abathar, more unfinished business. But Adonijah did it to himself when he asked for Abishag. He had a second chance. Oh, he, was, he had a second chance. Some people, there's not enough. They just never get it. And Abathar, the priest, the king said, and to Abathar, the priest, the king, Solomon said, go to Anath, to your own fields, for you are deserving of death, but I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before my father David, and because you were afflicted every time my father was afflicted. So Solomon removed Abathar from being priest to the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which, we sp- which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. 
So back in the very beginning of 1 Samuel, when Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, committed all their evil, God promised that none of his sons would continue in the priesthood, and Abathar was a link to the house of Eli. So Abathar survived the slaughter of the priest in On when Dog the Edomite had them all killed. We read that story back in 1 Samuel. And he's, he was faithful to David until the very end. And he finds mercy, which is pretty cool that he finds mercy, but he is disgraced. He's not going out as a priest. He's not going out in favor of the Lord. He's being, he's got his place. He's got his property. And he's, he gets to think about the remaining days of his life, how a great life the wheels came off in the end. It's almost like in sports when someone is so close to greatness and they snatch defeat from the hands of victory. And that's always so hard to watch. And really, Abathar could have been such a hero but just like Joab and Adonijah, Shimei, he picked the wrong side. They picked the flesh instead of the spirit. They picked fear and, and striving instead of faith and trusting. But for him, Solomon was very merciful and didn't execute him. And that just shows that Solomon didn't treat everybody equally and no, nor should we all be treated equally. God makes distinctions. Verse 28. Then the news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adonijah, though he had not defeated Absalom. Though he had not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiadiah, saying, Go strike him down. And Benaniah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And Joab said, No, but I will die here. And Benaniah brought back word to the king, saying, Thus says Joab, and thus he answered me. Then the king said to him, Do as he said, and strike him down, and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head, because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed him with the sword. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah. Though my father David did not know it, their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiadiah, went up, struck and killed him. And he buried him in his own house in the wilderness. And then the king put Benaniah, the son of Jehoiadiah, in place over the army. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in place of Abathar. This is the end of Joab. He's a cold-blooded murderer, and he got away with it because there is a distinction between killing in war and killing in a time of peace, and the Holy Spirit drew that distinction for us at the beginning of this chapter. He is a cold-blooded murderer. In cold blood, he struck down these men, premeditated, and he killed them. He couldn't distinguish between killing in a time of war and killing in a time of peace. And he murdered them. And there was blood guilt on him. And he didn't get away with it. It's kind of like with Ancestry.com now where all these people do these background checks and they match DNA for all these former, they're finding all these old murderers and rapists, right? I'm sure you've seen this. In the last five years with the advancement of DNA, there are so many people that thought they got away with murders and rape and stuff like that in the 60s and 70s and 80s. They're catching them now. They have, they have the database, they're connecting it, and you see these guys are like 70, 80, 90, mostly guys, violent criminals, and they're solving the cases. 
We don't always see justice in time, but we will always see it in eternity. Joab almost got through life, getting away with cold-blooded murder, but in the end, he's like someone on death row with a chaplain speaking to him before he gets hung or electrocuted or shot by a firing squad. But this guy, why evil people like this can live so long and get away with what they do and why good people die young, it's just a mystery of life, isn't it? We'll never really understand it, but he didn't get away with it. That's the end of him. And his blood is on him. And David's house was innocent. So again, capital punishment on another treasonous man. But this time, he's a cold-blooded murderer too. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there anywhere. For it shall be on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron. Know for certain you shall surely die. Your blood shall be upon your own head. So the idea is like how Absalom left town and built a rebellion and brought back treason. So Shimei, he cursed the king. He was a Benjamite. He talked about Saul and the reign of Saul, the previous king. He's got that in him. Verse 38, And Shimei said to the king, The saying is good, as my lord the king has said, so your servant will do. So Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days. Now it happened at the end of three years, the two slaves of Shimei ran away to Achish, the son of Makkah, king of Gath. And they told Shimei, saying, Look, your slaves are in Gath. So Shimei arose, saddled his donkey, and went to Achish to Gath to seek his slaves. And Shimei went and brought his slaves from Gath. So he was successful in attaining them and bringing them back. And Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and had come back. Then the king sent and called for Shimei and said, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and travel anywhere, you shall surely die? And he said to me, And and you said to me, The word I have heard is good. Why then have you not kept the oath of the Lord and the commandment that I gave you? The king said, Moreover, Shimei, you know, as your heart acknowledges, all the wickedness you did to my father David. Therefore, the Lord will return your wickedness on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. So the king commanded Benadiah, the son of Jehoiadiah. He went out and struck him down, and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So there was unfinished business, unpleasant stuff, but it had to be dealt with. And by the way, when someone you love and look up to dies and is your family member, you might have unpleasant stuff that you have to deal with. You might have unpleasant relatives that are going to threaten you over trust, wills, estates, and things like that. You may have former disgruntled employees, neighbors, liens on property. You might have all kinds of stuff that's unpleasant to deal with, right? Come on now, you guys have been alive long enough to know that this is the way it can go. But Solomon dealt with it. I think how my own mom prepared me for when she'd be gone. She said, look, you have to deal with this. You have to deal with this. You can deal with that. My mom would take me to lunch once a year and say, okay, here's, here's you know, the plot of earth you're burying me in Cleveland. These relatives, this thing, you're going to need to do that. You're going to do that. You know, the cheapest cremation is this place over here. You do this. You do that. You know, like death certificate. Walk me through it. Then you're going to have to, you know, your sister, she's still in the halfway houses. You're going to have to help her get established. She can't possibly live in California. You're going to have to convince her to live in Florida. All this stuff. You have to sell my house during COVID. Like, we didn't know, but hey. And you know what mom told me before she stepped into eternity? And this is like Solomon, and this is for all of us. It's a good word here. My mom taught me, just do the next thing and take care of my dad. Call the insurance people and just do the next thing. And I watched my wife be so good with this stuff. Jennifer, when she was trying to do the next thing and it didn't work out, she'd say, well, what would you like me to do? 
Jennifer is always looking for the resolution on how to resolve something that seemed unresolvable. And of course, now, if you try and make any phone calls with the banks, the IRS, all these different things right now since COVID, we all know, hey, we know it's pretty hard just to get to see your doctor, right? Most of you know that. It's not that easy. You're probably going to just go to urgent care and get what's there. But my mom taught me, don't be overwhelmed. There might be all these things, and you know, you're going to have to take my remains through TSA. She just foresaw all these things. So, but you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna know what to do, and you're gonna do these things one at a time, and they're gonna be emotional, they're gonna be difficult, they might be arduous, but you're gonna do it. And it was so blessed how smooth it went after my mom stepped into eternity. But you got to do it. The new beginning often means fixing and resolving things of the previous generation, the previous chapter, the previous season, the previous administration, whatever it might be, and you got to do it. And so really, as a leader, I tip my hat to Solomon because these are not easy things to do. These are capital punishment crimes. Treason, cold-blooded murder, and then really probably more a treason thing. But when you look at Shimei, Pastor Chuck Smith used to have a saying, if you give a man enough rope, he'll hang himself. And you learn that in life with difficult employees and difficult staff and in, in the churches. Sometimes when it's really contentious in the church, you think, okay, do, is there a biblical reason to, to force these people out? Maybe yes, maybe no. Is there a way we can just agree to agree to get them out? For example, like I'll compare this to if you're a landlord and a tenant. You can, no, in California, it's hard to evict anybody, but like in Florida and Texas and these other places, you can evict a tenant, usually in 15 days, maybe a month. But it costs about five grand usually to get a lawyer to do the eviction process. And you've got someone paying $750 for a one bedroom unit, then what's, you know, cost, you know, risk reward. So buyout is usually the best option. Buyout is usually the best option. So you want to, like, you have someone that hasn't paid the rent for a couple months, you're going, like, look, you're struggling, you need cash, why don't I give you 750 bucks a month's worth of rent, call it even, let you go. So you spent 2200 instead of five grand. Like, we're looking for resolutions, and we want to resolve things, and sometimes they work out, and sometimes they don't. But in this case here with Shimei, if you give a man enough rope, he'll hang himself. And sometimes you hope, I hope they just leave. I may ask them to leave. But sometimes you don't really have a reason to fire someone. Of course, when you have a lot of employees and you say you're fired, you, nowadays, you know, the law really favors the employee that doesn't work hard as opposed to the boss who's trying to produce income that benefits the tax revenue for the government doesn't do anything except take tax revenue for income. And so now you just wait for it. Like, you might say, I'm going to hang this person. And I was like, don't, don't hang him. Just hand him the rope. And I've been on this planet for 60 years, and I've been in ministry for 35. I've learned people will hang themselves. And you might need to ask someone to leave the business or leave the church. You might need to settle with a tenant and just figure it out, resolve it, give them the buyout. You still save two grand more than what you, if you brought in the lawyers. But some people are like Shimei. They can't help themselves. He's different than Adonijah, but he's... Remember, Shimei just wanted to curse. He didn't want money, right? Shimei didn't want power or money. He just wanted to curse. He, he had no objective. He's just blogging and cursing. That's what he's doing. And Shimei is so short-sighted, he chases down two slaves. And all I could think when I looked at this is like, I want to ask Shimei, 
Was it worth it? Was it worth it? You've got to show those slaves who's the boss. You go get them down there in Gath. And you're like, was it worth it? Shimei, was it worth it? Because now by your own words, you're holding the rope. Solomon, hey, what's that in your hand right there? A rope. What are you going to do with it? Hang myself? Because by his own words, he was hung. Chapter 4. It's great insight to us. Just let the Lord fight the battles and... Man, just if you say you're going to do something, do it, and don't lose your life over two slaves. You understand what I'm saying? Like something that you have to control, just let it go. Was it worth it? Man, just, yeah, there's a lot there. Chapter 3, now Solomon made a tree with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord unto those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of his father David, except they sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. So Solomon is now king. He already was married. He married um, an Ammonitus, Nema, the Ammonitus. If you reconcile 1 Kings 14, that talks about Rehoboam, his son Rehoboam, who became the king after he died, he was a bad king, but Rehoboam is from Nama, the Ammonitus, and if you, when scripture interprets scripture, you realize that he had to be born before Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh. So, first of all, he married like an Ammonitus, and now he's marrying Pharaoh's wife. But of course, we know if you study monarchs and stuff, you marry, you marry kingdoms together because that's how you avoid going to war. So, if Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter, he's not going to go invade Egypt because, you know, that's, that's, that's my father-in-law. Again, the Prussians, the Russians, the Brits, the French, they all did this kind of stuff. You build, it's like a chessboard. It's like a game of Monopoly in a different way, but you build this kingdom, but you do the intermarriages, and they're political, and it keeps stability. That's how it works. People still do this in a lot of cultures. Very affluent families will do things a certain way to strengthen their kingdom and form allegiances that are uh, beneficial economically. So that's the background to the marriage, and it is the beginning of trouble. He would end up with seven, 300 wives and 700 concubines. It all began with Ammonitis, and then went on to Pharaoh's daughter. And ultimately, these women became snares to him, and we'll get that to that in later chapters. Now, the king, so there were high places. There wasn't the people would make sacrifices in different places, but eventually became places of pagan worship and pagan sacrifice. And that's why it says there in verse 3 that Solomon loved the Lord. He walked in the statues of David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. At one point, were somewhat acceptable to the Lord where the people would make offerings before they had the central place of worship, and God permitted it. But under Solomon, it became a place where his pagan wives did their offerings, and it became a snare for Israel for centuries. Now, verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, and there was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar as Gibeon the Lord. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart with you. You've continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. 
O Lord my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who's able to judge this great people of yours? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this thing. Then God said to him, again, this all in a dream, because you've asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there shall be there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be not anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered up peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants." This is all a really good start for Solomon, and it makes us happy for him that he had such a good start, and it's very encouraging. In this text, in this dream, so God, obviously, it's dreams, and we know throughout the Bible, God has spoken in dreams. I mean, the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus comes in the world, starts out with numerous dreams connected with the whole story of the birth of Jesus. There's multiple dreams, dreams of warning, dreams of this, dreams of that, and we don't fully understand, like, how... God would do that, but we're told prophetically that God speaks to his prophets and prophetesses through dreams. And people also now, often ask me, well, I had this dream. It's like, well, you know, there's only three possibilities with the dream. It's from the Lord, which I believe is fairly rare, but it certainly can be. It's from the devil. That has not been that uncommon in my life. Or it's just you eating bad pizza, right? Like, I mean, it's you. It's just your mind. You know, you got a trillion cells in there. Your subconscious holds all the data you've ever been exposed to. It's there. It's all wired up. It's there. And so who even knows? Like, I still have dreams about the pipe masters where I'm missing a fin or I don't have my leash. Like, I have dreams like, you know, my dad told me, uh, you know, he was, as a lieutenant colonel, he was in charge of a lot of stuff, but mostly administrative stuff. And he said he'd had these dreams where he couldn't find the paperwork. And he's like, he's like in a Marine Corps barracks, you know, looking for the paperwork. He's like, you wake up like, you know, like, that's probably just bad pizza. Because I don't think that's the Lord or the devil. But this dream, this is the Lord. And it's recorded for us in detail what he asked for. And so it brings up this question. If the Lord came to us in a dream or straight up like in a still moment or sent an angel to stand in your room like Gabriel and said, what would you have me to do for you? What would we say? What, what would we ask for? What would we ask for? What would I ask for? Now, depending on your age, you might ask for different things, right? What's the first inclination of what you would ask for? See, when you're young, you want, you know, you think about wealth, comfort, adventure, all this kind of stuff. You get a little bit older, you think like, well, if you had any kind of health issues, you'd probably ask for health and to be pain-free. That goes really high on the list when you don't have it. Then you get old enough, you might ask for things that are a blessing to the people coming behind you. And as you lose your life in Christ, you'll be more inclined to pray for greater humility, greater love, greater servanthood, greater discernment to be a greater blessing, length of years, maybe greater wealth to distribute and bless other people, which is rare, but it, it can happen. 
But it's worth asking ourselves tonight, what, what would we ask for? Because I, I asked myself this week, looking at this text, what, what would I ask for? What would you ask for? See, you and the Lord know. But if we're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33, our thinking should be kingdom-minded. So whatever we're asking for, it should be moving us toward to be a more spirit-filled woman, a more spirit-filled man. Because a more spirit-filled woman is going to make good decisions with whatever opportunity she has. And a more spirit-filled man is going to make good decisions with whatever he has. And a more spirit-filled woman is going to be more thankful than a carnal woman or a fleshly woman. And a more spirit-filled man is going to be more grateful and less prideful than a carnal man. So if we can have more of the spirit, when Jesus said, seek, knock, and ask, and the Father will give, but in Luke's account, he says, how much more will we give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So really, if you break it down, probably the number one thing we should be asking for is to be filled with the spirit. Because being filled with the Spirit will serve us well if we're entrusted with wealth, and it'll serve us well if we're entrusted with poverty. It'll serve us well if we have good health to our 100th birthday, and it'll serve us well if we're in excruciating pain before we hit 60. To be Spirit-filled is the number one thing we should ask for. And in a sense, if Solomon asked for wisdom, he really, because one of the gifts of the Spirit is wisdom, but he's, he's asking for the right thing. He's asking for supernatural power to do what God has called him to do. So again, if we're asking for supernatural power for what God has called us to do, that's the right thing. Because people ask for money and wealth, and they win the lottery, and they blow it all, right? People ask to be pro sports figures, and 95% of them are broke within five years after the end of their career, no matter how many millions they made. The famous Latrice Sprewell comment when he held out, like they offered him $13 million and he wanted $18 million. He said, how am I going to feed my family? And the Knicks didn't resign him, and he's been bankrupt ever since. It's a well-known story. That's what makes him like Shaquille O'Neal so exceptional is that the guy made a lot of money, and he made way more money since, like Magic Johnson, right? Like certain people, but most people that make a lot of money in sports, they spend as much as, as you increase what comes in, they spend more what comes in. They don't play the long game. So people that ask for wealth and these things, they generally don't, you know, there's, there's like movies about people who do this and waste it all. There's like the Twilight Zone, even the 50s had people that like fought over the gold bars or something, right? Like it's just, it, we want to be spirit filled and we want to grow in the Lord. And that's what we want to ask for because that woman, that man can be entrusted with the things of the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom. And it will be good for us. It will be good for humanity and the people you love. I say this all the time. You, Spirit-filled, is the best thing for your marriage, your children, your children's children, your neighbors, your boss, and everyone around you. Planet Earth, 8 billion people say thank you, ultimately, for you being Spirit-filled because you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. You're the kingdom of God on Earth, and you're making things better. And when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, you mean it, and God does it through your life. The alternative is just being like Adonijah, Shimei, Joab. Now, we wrap it up tonight. So he asked for a good thing, and God gave it to him. And of course, our good father, Jesus said, it's your father's good pleasure to bless you. And we know, like in this story, he gets greater blessings than what he asked for. God's like, you didn't even ask for this, but I'm going to bless you with this. That's the heart of God. 
His thoughts for us are not evil, but they're good thoughts to give us a future and a hope. The thoughts of God, he's a blessing God. And this was my whole message on the back end Saturday night. Like, let's believe God for greater things in the future than what the past was. Because our God's a blessing God. And here we see it again. Here we see it again. Like, oh, David's dead. It's the end of all the great things in Israel. No, it's not. Solomon's on the throne and God just gave him a double blessing. He asked for wisdom and God gave him everything else he didn't ask for. And he didn't ask for wisdom so he could get the other stuff. It's just a byproduct of asking for the right thing when your heart's in the right place. Now we wrap it up tonight where we see his wisdom. Verse 16. Now two women who were harlots or prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I'd given birth. This woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. Two prostitutes with two newborns in the same house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night, took my son from my side while your maidservant slept, laid him in her bosom, and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead son one is yours and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, the one says, this one's my son who lives. Your son's a dead one. The other says, no, but your son is a dead one. My son is a living son. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought him a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living son and by no means kill him. For the other said, but the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child, for by no means kill him. She is the, his mother. And all Israel heard of this judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. This is that famous story that went out throughout all of Israel from the court, this resolution of this enigma, this difficult thing. When you look at the book of Solomon, the book of Proverbs, which is the book of Solomon, and you see like 31 chapters of all this wisdom and all these things, it is amazing that truly this human being, by the grace of God, was given power, supernatural power, to look at information and deduct what it means and how it was to be applied favorably. So later on in his life, he wrote Song of Solomon, he wrote Ecclesiastes at the end, but he wrote the Proverbs throughout his life, thousands of Proverbs. He says repeatedly in the book of Proverbs, these three that go together, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And we see it here in the story. Knowledge is the facts. Two harlots living together, They each have a child within three days. One child's dead. One child's alive. This is the facts. This is the data. This is the information. This is the knowledge. This is the case being presented, like a court of law, you know, plaintiff, defendant. It's being presented. These these are the facts. Regardless of which woman's telling the truth, the fact is established. These two prostitutes live together. They both say they're prostitutes. They both had a son within three days, and they shared the residence. These are the facts. That's knowledge. Understanding is that as he considered the matter, maybe he thought of his own mother, Bathsheba, 
But if you think about natural maternal instincts, so both these women, now they offered up children to idols like Molech at this time already. There have always been unwanted children on planet Earth. And men and women have disposed of unwanted children on planet Earth from the dawn of creation. In fact, when reading about the foundation of our country, in 1775, there in New York on Long Island, there was a place where women would take their unwanted babies and they'd leave them there to die. Now they just go to Planned Parenthood in New York. But in 1775, but the year before you know everything began, really it actually began in 1775, Bunker Hill and all that stuff, in reading on American history, there was a place where everyone knew you take your baby you don't want and you leave the baby to die. So obviously something has to happen that breaks off the natural maternal instincts. But normally they'd be maternal instincts. But in this case, Solomon, stay with me, would know that both these women kept their children. They didn't offer up an unwanted child. Like, they didn't use uh, emphasize as birth control. They both wanted to keep their child. So now we know that maternal instincts are in play, not a seared conscience or the things that you go through to, you know, do things that you do. So he would know these are the facts, knowledge, understanding is maternal instincts are in play. Both these women wanted their children. Therefore, the living mom, because the natural response, the, the truest maternal instinct from God between human beings is a mother lays down her life for her child, not lays down her child's life for her life. Most of you moms that have raised children, if a car is coming in the crosswalk, you're going to let that car hit you before it hits your kids. Because I still do that as a grandpa. I'm ready to take one for the team right then and there. That's what God puts in us, the maternal, paternal instincts. Emphasize that has to change. Something goes wrong in there. However it's justified, that has to be a seared conscience to some degree. Now, maybe some of you women have abortions. I paid for an abortion. And I know how my mind was seared to do what I did. It's the most expensive hundred bucks I ever paid for. And I paid for it dearly, holding my dead son in my arms two years later, the one I wanted. Because the Lord said, you didn't cry for this one, but you cry for this one. Now you know the value of a life. Now go forward. So Solomon has the facts, but then he realizes, no, these women want these children. That's, that's maternal instinct. And the real mom will not let me kill this baby. So wisdom is, he came up with a plan in his mind. He came up with a plan where he knew the real mom would be revealed because if it was harm to the child, she would not let it happen. But a harlot who's lost her child, she's not going to care about that baby. She's already kind of have a sincere conscience in some ways anyways. She has a numbness to her life being a prostitute. And he knew that. And when he called, the wisdom was to resolve it and figure out whose child it is. And when he called for the man with the sword, and listen, when Solomon calls for a sword, what have we learned so far about Benadiah? Yeah, yeah, this sword falls. If Solomon says, hey, bring the sword, people know like, hey, the sword's coming out. Somebody better do something right now. Because we don't have Adonijah, Shimei, or Joab. When Solomon calls for the sword, it's the sword. And the real mom right away reveals herself. See, Solomon had the knowledge. Then he had the understanding of the paternal element. And then he had the wisdom to make the right call 
to decide it. Now, you and I do not have the same wisdom as Solomon. The Bible says right here, no one would ever have the same level of wisdom. So just keep reading the Proverbs every day and close the gap. I have the book of Proverbs, Living Bible. I read it almost every other day. Read the Proverbs, meditate on the truths that God gave him. Read the word of God, grow in wisdom. And know this, the Bible tells us this, and this is really important as we go our way right now. The imitation from the Holy Spirit himself in the book of James. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it liberally. But do not do so with a double mind. It goes back to being spirit-filled. You can't be spiritual and carnal and ask for wisdom. you got to be spiritual and ask for wisdom and then receive it and obey it. So we may not have this kind of wisdom, but we are told in the Bible to have knowledge, to have understanding, and to have wisdom, and to seek wisdom. And then we're promised, as New Testament believers, in the book of James, if we ask for wisdom, God will give it to us. And don't we always need wisdom anyways? God help the man or woman who thinks they have it all figured out. (laughs) I, I, I can't do this, and neither can you. We really are meant to do life depending upon the Lord, to seek first his kingdom. And seeking first his kingdom, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us the wisdom that we'll know the way to go. This text tonight started out with David telling Solomon, just obey the scriptures, do what's obvious. And then ask for the right thing when God asks you what you want. And then trust him to give it to you when you need it, when it's not so obvious and you have to wait on the Lord. Knowledge, understanding, wisdom. Wisdom.